the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And good morning. I'm Gary Randall. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's Thursday, March the 17th, 2022, in the year of our Lord. Today is St. Patrick's Day. I want to talk a little bit about St. Patrick. I want to talk a little bit about an Irishman who chose the name of the United States of America. On March 17, 1969, Golda Meir became Prime Minister of Israel. Today, in 1762, New York held its first St. Patrick's Day Parade. 1762. Today, in 1776, the Revolutionary War siege of Boston ended as British forces evacuated the city. Today, in 1905, Anna Eleanor Roosevelt married Franklin Delano Roosevelt in New York. Today, in 1950, scientists at the University of California at Berkeley announced they had created a new radioactive element. They called it Californium. I think that radioactive element could also be applied to government in California now. It, too, is radioactive. I suppose we could call it Californium. Today, in 1966... A U.S. Navy midget submarine located a missing hydrogen bomb. The bomb had fallen from a U.S. Air Force B-52 bomber into the Mediterranean off Spain. Now, it took several weeks to actually recover the bomb after they found it. How would you like to have been assigned as one of the guys lifting that hydrogen bomb out of the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea and somehow taking it on a boat or a helicopter or whatever to the shore somewhere and getting it back safely where it belongs, probably on a B-52 bomber. I don't know. I would not have wanted to be one of those guys on that crew. That would be kind of a nervous situation, I would think. But anyway, they successfully got the bomb back to where it was, where it belonged, to its home base. Hydrogen bomb dropped off accidentally into the Mediterranean Sea. Today in 2016, finally bowing to years of public pressure, SeaWorld Entertainment said they would no longer breed killer whales or make them perform. Today is St. Patrick's Day. Today means different things to different people. Some think it's wearing something green and getting drunk. But to many people, St. Patrick's Day means more than that. In our troubled times, we often take the term the United States of America for granted. But it was an Irishman who served in Washington's Navy who first used the term at a time at a time when our very existence, our quest for independence, was in question. Nobody in the world believed that the colonists, the ragtag army is what they called it, that they could defeat the British military, the British forces. 
the strongest in the world. We know they did, but during that march to victory, there were a lot of incidents that happened that were both interesting and some providential, obviously so. I want to talk a little bit about that today, but I want to talk to you also about Patrick, the saint, St. Patrick. Mary Cagney, she's an author, she's written a number of articles, she wrote about Patrick the Saint. She said, with no Roman army to protect them, Roman legions had long since deserted Britain to protect Rome from the barbarian invasions. Let me just pause there for a moment, because just to say that as the Roman Empire began to collapse, I've made a kind of a life study of this. I'm not an expert, but I know a lot about it because I've been very interested The parallels are undeniable between every republic, every democracy that has existed. But um, in this case, Rome was beginning to collapse, and they had stretched themselves too far. They were fighting too many wars on too many fronts. And because they were stretched so thin in their resources, and then within Rome itself, there was a moral collapse And that was having an effect on the culture, if you're following me. It sounds vaguely familiar. Because of that weakness and because they had were engaged in wars all over the then known world or occupying countries they had conquered, the barbarians realized that and they began to attack Rome itself rather than fighting them out on the perimeters of the Roman Empire. So they had withdrawn their troops, got out of the wars, their Afghanistans or whatever, and they were pulling their troops back to Rome. That was why Britain was not protected at this particular time in history, was not protected by Rome as it once had been. Rome was busy at home trying to save itself. So anyway, Mary Cagney writes, And she said, with no Roman army to protect them, Roman legions had long since deserted Britain to protect Rome from barbarian invasions. Patricius and his town were unprepared for the attack. The Irish warriors, wearing helmets and armed with spears, descended on the pebbled beach. The brain warhorns, she writes, struck terror into Patricius's heart, and he started to run toward town. The warriors quickly demolished the village, and as Patricius darted among the burning houses and screaming women, he was caught. The barbarians dragged him aboard a boat bound for the east coast of Ireland. Much history tells us that for six years, Patrick herded animals for a druid chieftain. He later wrote in his own life story, it's called The Confession of St. Patrick, he said this, quote, But after I came to Ireland, every day I had to tend sheep, and many times a day I prayed. The love of God and his fear came to me more and more, and my faith was strengthened. And my spirit was moved so that in a single single day, I would say as many as a hundred prayers, and almost as many in the night. And this even when I was staying in the woods and on the mountains. And I used to get up for prayer before daylight, through snow through frost, through rain. There, he writes, the Lord opened the sense of my unbelief 
that I might at last remember my sins and be converted with all my heart to the Lord my God, who comforted me as would a father his son. Then Patrick had a dream. He wrote about that as well. He said, One night I heard in my sleep a voice saying to me, It is well that you fast. Soon you will go to your own country. And again a voice saying to me, See, your ship is ready. And it was not near, he wrote, but at a distance of perhaps 200 miles that I took flight. I went in the strength of God who directed my way until I came to the ship. Patrick eventually made his way back to Britain and was reunited with what was left of his family. Then when he was about 40 years old, he had another dream calling him back to Ireland as a missionary. In his confession, Patrick writes this, and I quote, In the depth of the night I saw a man named Victoricus coming as if it were from Ireland with innumerable letters and he gave me one, and while I was reading, I thought I heard the voice of those near the western sea call out, Please, holy boy, come and walk among us again. He said, he said their cry pierced my very heart, and I could read no more. And so I awoke. Patrick returned to Ireland. He confronted the Druids. He converted chieftains. And he used the three-leaf clover to teach the Trinity. Now, there's a lot more stories about St. Patrick and snakes and the whole thing. I don't know some of that, whether it's true or not, but I do know that this is from a pretty reliable source. It's from his own writing, his own thoughts, and his own diary, and his vision of what happened in his young life. And then at mid-age, he was called back as a missionary. It's an interesting time that we live in. In our troubled times, we often take the term the United States of America for granted. But I think it's interesting, and I think it's appropriate today on this St. Patrick's Day that we point out that it was an Irishman who served in Washington's Navy who first used the term at a time when our very existence, our quest for independence was in question. He wrote in a letter calling these colonies that would become states the United States of America. Let me tell you the story behind that. He was a plucky Irishman for sure. Patrick K. O'Donnell is a best-selling author. You probably have seen his books out there. You may not recognize his name, but he's critically acclaimed. He's a historian. He's an expert on war. He served, actually, as a combat historian with a, a Marine rifle platoon during the Battle of Fallujah, which is kind of a recent um, famous battle. His story, his story in the Indispensables, the diverse soldier mariners who shaped the country, formed the Navy, and rode Washington across the Delaware, out of that book, I took this excerpt. I want to share it with you. It's about, it's about how our American Navy came into being. And more importantly today, just as a note, about an Irishman who in his vision, putting everything he had on the line, as they all did, for our freedom, 
he thought about these colonies in a different way and just inadvertently wrote in a letter to the United States of America. O'Donnell writes in his book, An American Navy would be a crucial key in achieving the sovereignty and independence of a nation yet to be born. The United States of America, today's unmatched U.S. Navy, the most powerful in the world, had humble origins. A single fishing boat. In August of 1775, motivated by desperation for gunpowder and propelled by American ingenuity, George Washington ordered Marblehead Merchant and regimental commander John Glover to outfit his schooner. It was a fishing boat. It was called the Hannah. He said, Washington told Glover, he said, make it a war machine, make it a war boat. Challenging the British Royal Navy, the greatest navy in the history of the world at that time, by transforming a fishing boat into a man of war seemed as preposterous then as it does now. But British disarmament and a lack of crucial gunpowder in the colonies led the American innovation. Colonel Glover, he converted more merchant and fishing boats after he had done his own. It was beginning to work out. They would prey on the vulnerable British transports. The British were so arrogant, so full of themselves, they really didn't think that these guys were capable of much at all. Kind of like Putin seems to be thinking or was thinking when he went into Ukraine, I think, from what I can see. But they kept transferring and transforming these fishing boats into cruisers, warships. Oh, they weren't great, but they worked. And they would prey on these vulnerable British transports carrying troops and particularly those carrying the gunpowder. Because Washington needed more gunpowder for his army and his navy and whatever. That soon became dubbed as Washington's Navy. The Marbleheaders, as they were called, they captured some of the greatest prize ships of the Revolutionary War. Couldn't believe it back in England. They kept saying, what's wrong? (laughs) As the Enterprise expanded beyond the Hannah to other ships, this General George Washington brought in the Army's muster master general. His name was Stephen Moylan. Brought him in to assist Glover in managing this newly created burgeoning Navy. The muster master general had the task of accounting for the men in each of the Continental Army's units. He was a tough, husky Irish immigrant. Moylan hailed from a prominent family, Irish trading family. They sent him to Paris and later to Lisbon for his education. He was a well-spoken gentleman with a brogue, of course. He had a keen mind for international trade and business, elected before the war as the first president of the Friendly Sons of St. Patrick. It was an organization of prosperous merchants. Moylan now helped manage the construction and the crews for the ships. Moylan's partnership with Glover proved potent. They got along well. They realized Washington's vision, and they shared it. Moylan extended Washington's direct authority to Glover. As Reed wrote, Mr. Moylan, the muster master general is associated with you in this business and whatever engagements are entered into by you and Mr. Moylan when you happen to be together or by either in case one goes to Newberry, the general will fully ratify and confirm. Full trust. Moylan spoke for his boss, Washington. And it could be argued that Moylan's thinking was almost exactly in line with Washington's thinking. 
including the important issue of independence from Great Britain. Seven months before the Declaration of Independence, Moylan wrote a letter to Washington's aide of camp, Joseph Reed. On January the 2nd, 1776, he issued this term. He wrote back and he said, he was talking about the war and he referred to the United States of America. This is history's first recorded use of that term. Moylan's letter also highlighted a threatening speech from King George III that diplomacy would not solve the crisis. Well, they already knew that, and they had obviously addressed that in the Declaration of Independence. If you've read the Declaration of Independence, and if you haven't, you should read that. But in that letter, that declaration to the king, they told him, they said, we've already tried diplomatic attempts. We've written to you time after time after time, and you've ignored us. Just read the Declaration of Independence. Then they go through and they list all of their grievances. They said, we've been telling you this, and you're not listening to us. You won't even respond. So now we're responding, and we're declaring our independence. I mean, that is the story of America. They, We tried, the colonies tried to be diplomatic about it. But, oh, no, the king, he would have none, none of that. He was so full of himself and so above it all, that he didn't even understand what was going on in the real world. Unfortunately, we suffer from that today in some of our own leadership. But that's later. Anyway, King George III said diplomacy will not solve the the crisis. Up to that point, many Americans had looked at themselves as loyal subjects of a benevolent king who would resolve the grievances. They believed that he would work it out. Oh, it'll work it out. Government will take care of it. Does that sound familiar? Several factors that influenced Moylan's use of this moniker, Washington's Navy, which he helped manage, was itself an act of sovereignty. The na- a Navy, or having a Navy, signaled the start of an enormous undertaking. The vessels necessitated the printing of money and assumption of debt for their construction would require infrastructure and bureaucracy for support. A Navy contributed to American independence, and actually it was a large step toward the creation of a new nation. Joseph Reed, whom Moylan wrote to using the term the United States of America, he also suggested that he liked the idea. He said, the United States of America. He said, we need a flag for our vessels. (laughs) What do you think of a flag? This is Reed getting back to Moylan. He said, what do you think of a flag with a white ground, a tree in the middle, the motto, appeal to heaven? I like the motto, personally. The tree, I don't know, but that was then. They liked trees. In authorizing armed warships, Congress and Washington were already taking this unprecedented step toward independence and sovereignty by flying a separate flag. Not the British, but a separate flag. That would have been a monumental leap closer to the goal of becoming a sovereign nation. This flag that they created, they went ahead and created this flag. Big, bold type across the top of the flag, an appeal to heaven. Then they have a green, it looks like a Christmas tree. It looks just like the little trees that we grow here in the Northwest, and they become great big trees. Looks like it. I, the only way I can describe it is like a Christmas tree. I wrote an article on this today, and I, I put a picture of of the flag such as it was, the beginning one. But the appeal to heaven, 
I like that a lot. Some guys just called it, they referred to that flag when it first started flying on our former fishing boats, now war machines, war boats. They called it the pine tree flag. It was flown by all of the ships initially in the American Revolution. But multiple versions of the flag at the end of the revolution existed because immediately the British realized that these ragtag people from the colonies were for real. So they destroyed that flag. They were able to get a hold of it and destroy it. So they, our guys didn't have another copy of it, so they they started making other flags trying to duplicate it, and they were close duplicates, some some not so much. But there are a lot of flags, and if so if you see that appeal to heaven that in a, some kind of a history article, you'll know there were numerous versions of it, but it was the same flag. Moylan and many of his fellow Americans started to look at themselves as citizens, not subjects. Americans were not mere colonists, but citizens of independent states, the United States of America, not colonies of Great Britain. And that transformation began to take place in their heart, in their minds. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And these guys begin to think as citizens of a sovereign state, not colonies of Great Britain. American sovereignty remains as important today as it was in 1776. Now more than ever with today's internal strife and division, we need to look back at the founders, and that's why I do that so often on this program. The forgotten Americans, like today on St. Patrick's Day, Stephen Moylan, he staked his life, his fortune, his sacred honor. They all did on an idea of the United States of America. As Mr. Harvey, that would be Paul Harvey, would say, now you know the rest of the story. John Adams, one of our founding fathers, he said in 1775, before the declaration and the war had really gotten underway. He said this, it was prophetic. He said, liberty once lost is lost forever. When the people once surrender their share in the legislature and their right of defending the limitations upon the government and of resisting every encroachment upon them, he's not talking about Great Britain. He's talking about our own government that we created and of resisting every encroachment upon them, they could never regain it. it. Um, What he's talking about there is that liberty is elusive. Freedom must be, we must be very vigilant about our freedoms. Words written by John Adams in 1775 ring true today. Today our nation faces unprecedented challenges. From election integrity, conservative censorship, to vaccine passports and lying, presenting science that isn't science, mask mandates, surging crime levels. I talked about crime in our cities the other day. Border security. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable that our president is spending as much money in a few days defending Ukraine. And I, I man, I support Ukraine. It's horrible what Russia is doing to the Ukrainian people. 
He's killing children and women and families. And I mean, he, he's it's evil. But our president has spent as much on as much on their borders as it would take to complete the wall in our own borders. It's amazing. Biden, on his very first day in office, signed an executive order revoking the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. Now Biden is looking to Iran and Venezuela. Venezuela has already said they won't sell us oil. Biden backed off that. What he he didn't expect there to be so much public pressure. Who knows who he'll be cutting a deal with? Iran? Would he actually buy oil from him? Probably. You can't calculate what this kind of leadership, or lack thereof, that we have in America today, what they might do. The leftist response to adversity is always to strike down individual liberty, to implement more government, spend more money, and then blame others for the catastrophic failures, for the results of their policies. That's going on as we speak. That's what's happening in our world today. I think there needs to be a revival of the spirit of our founding fathers and those like the Irishman who named the United States of America. Just incidentally, that's how he saw it. And that's how we know it today as the United States of America. Throughout the Bible, there are inspiring leadership lessons from Bible characters But leadership from the very beginning of time has always been the key component. In God's economy, God looks to leadership to bring about his will, his purposes on earth. He looks to leadership. In Genesis 6, God is very disappointed about the wickedness that's overtaking humanity. Reluctantly, God decides to wipe out the human race with a flood and start from scratch. Scratch included Noah and his family. Noah is the only one who was seen by God as being good. You know the story. God tells him to build an ark that will save him and his family and the animals. As he's boarding the ark, God says to him in Scripture, For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Literally, the whole world was doing what was wrong. But Noah, at that time, and I know there were failures and flaws in Noah's life at the end of his life. I understand that. But I'm saying for now, and I'm talking about what Scripture says, everybody thought he was a kook because he was building an ark and there was no rain. There was no flood. And the people, I'm sure, stopped by and laughed and said, Hi, Noah, how's your boat coming out in the middle of nowhere where there's no water? But that didn't stop Noah from doing what was right and doing what he felt God had called him to do. Noah shows us that leaders do what's right even when they stand alone. And sometimes we have to stand alone in our position, in our life, for what we know to be right before God. Whether that means us going back to Ireland as a missionary, (laughs) or whatever that means. We live in such a time as that. A story in Genesis 12 of Abraham. God called him to go to a place he didn't even know about. He didn't even know where it was. He'd never heard of it before, but he stepped out. Leaders welcome the unknown. I think this is a time when God is calling us 
to be leaders in our own right, in our own way, in our own life. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you for your support. I'll see you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.